The best thing to happen to China has been the restrictions the U.S. has placed on the exports of the technology to China, because China is now incentivized to innovate. It's got the talent to do so. It's got the ecosystem in place, and so China really is on the verge of accelerating its production into the very most sophisticated chips. In fact, we need to upgrade、uh, our teaching model. How to train more、um, talent students? We don't have a lot of practice for young engineers. So usually they have a lot of good publication. I mean, for for papers, SCI papers. But what they really need is their experience and practice in industry and company. China has to move that R and D from government controlled to the private sector, to SMIC, to Huawei. Give them the government money. And let them decide what products to make, what technologies to make, with their engineers that know the market much better than research institutions. Once they begin to do that, I think you're going to see time fly much faster for the semiconductor technologies. The global politics have actually stepped in too heavily into the global you know, chips industry, and that finally will not stop the growth of countries like China. That will be enough demand. There will be enough money to invest into,、uh, like employing researchers,、uh, all these kind of things. And finally, China will have its own、uh, chips, maybe five or ten years later, at a quality comparable to the current、uh, leading level of chip production. The chat lounge. Chat lounge. Chat lounge. The chat lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the chat lounge. I'm Tuyin. Today we're talking about the outlook of China's chip manufacturing and supply, which is now under harsh U.S. sanctions. Joining our discussion are William Lee, chief economist at the U.S.-based Milken Institute. Chen Dahe, Chief Investment Officer of Beijing-based Novem Arcade Technologies; Jiang Tianjiao, Associate Professor, Development Institute, Fudan University in Shanghai; and Stanley Chow, Managing Director for All In Consulting. Stanley served as the Executive Vice President for the global leading manufacturer of memory product、um, Kingston Technology in the 1990s, and he is the author of the book、uh, Selling to China. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, talking about business, Stanley, let me start with you. Some not so rosy figures、um, have come out of、uh, China, and according to the country's customs bureau, the mainland's chip imports slumped nearly twenty-seven percent in the first two months of this year by volume, and. The drop was steeper than the 15% decline recorded for all of last year, which was the country's first annual fall in chips imports since 2004. And besides, chip output on the mainland went down 17% during the period. So, what is your interpretation of the figures? Was it due to you know some seasonal factors or anything else? Yeah, some people are blaming the seasonal factors. Or the fact that、uh, the world economy is、uh, is down, I don't particularly see it that way. I think it's、uh, China being hit quite hard by the、uh, Biden sanctions. When the san- sanctions were announced in October, a lot of the chip companies,、um, Nvidia, AMD, they stopped shipping 
some of their advanced AI chips to to China. Rather than be hurt by the sanctions or be affected, they just wanted to stop all shipments and kind of wait and see what happens. Uh, to give you an example, NVIDIA ships about $400 million worth of these advanced GPU and AI chips to China. Those literally stopped in October. And the I think the second reason was the U.S. recalled all its foreign nationals from China that are mm. servicing equipment in Chinese factories. Uh, the Dutch later did that, and the Japanese and the Taiwanese also did that. That forced a lot of the Chinese factories to either slow down operations or even stop operations. So I, I see those as, as the major causes of the chip downturn mm. last quarter. And uh, William, do you think China is going to face a continuous decline in chip importation? Well, I, I have a slightly different take from Stanley. Um, sure. Because I, I don't think um, sanctions and these new orders that were put out uh, work that quickly on, especially government numbers like import numbers. Mm. Um, I, I think what happened was COVID. The breakdown in, in the domestic economy in China essentially put everything to a standstill in December and January. Uh, it wasn't until after the restrictions were lifted that we started to see the activity come back just recently. Right. So so the numbers for the first two months really, I think, reflect the fact that the orders completely turned down uh, because everyone knew that the, even though the, the West was um, slowing down in terms of its GDP and demand for goods and people were shifting over to services, I mean, all of the purchases of Chinese electronics were done, you know, last you know couple of years ago. And so the demand for this stuff was quite well satisfied. Now, how much of that decline is because of anticipation of future downturn in orders, um, I, I would be hard-pressed to say, but a lot of this had to do with the fact that the supply chain itself was broken. Now, Stanley's absolutely right to say that um, uh, we have uh, some anticipation of the sanctions and and, and um, of the New Chips Act and a lot of the restrictions that are being put in place, but I don't think we could put all of the blame on that. But going forward, I think there will be some restrictions. But again, the restrictions are on the very high-end NVIDIA, you know, one, two, five, <laughs> you know, the single-digit nano uh, meter uh, technology, mm. but a, a ton of exports uh, have gone to China from various sources around the world for the stuff that's used in uh, microwaves and game boxes and and uh, cars. So I think a lot of those chips are still, you know, very much part of the uh, exports from the rest of the world into China as part of and, and China's role as sort of the the assembler of things in the world and the manufacturer of things. I think those are pretty well in place. So we're really talking about a very specific portion of the upper end technologies that that are being restricted right now. But you're not worried that that trend would continue? Oh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. But I'm just saying, you know, as a share of total, you know, how, how many you know, five nanometer chips are being imported relative to the 1820s? And, you know, the bread and butter of China manufacturing is in the the older technologies um, i mean the, the, as as advanced as tesla is <laughs> um it is not employing the the most advanced nvidia chips uh, or at least not a lot of them and and to the extent that um what elon has been able to do has been to substitute a lot of different uh, hardware sure. by using different software options so i think um you know going forward the harm that's being done to china by these sanctions i think is being um quite quite a bit exaggerated uh and in fact uh, you know i i hope we can go on to I have a little different spin on things. I think going forward, this would be a great opportunity for China, actually, to to be sort of the manufacturer of the 
20 something or 18 or 14 nanometer chips, uh, which the world needs. I mean, you know, what's what's held back the production of cars by Ford and GM is the lack of these chips. Mm -hmm. and, and, and China, you know, has been gearing up exactly in this area. So in terms of getting up the learning curve and really specializing in the part of the of the semiconductor industry that's most needed by the world in, in world industry, China's right in the heart of it. Mm. Wim seems to be an um, optimist, but I'm not quite sure about the two gentlemen inside China. Uh, Jahe, what's your take? How, how big a concern does the decline make to you? Well, actually, looking from uh, my point of view, well, basically, I'm an equity investor in China, and I monitor those of the financial statements of different listed, uh, you know, computer chips, uh, chip producing companies. And what I have saw is that most of the leading uh, chip producing companies in China have actually acquired a very large extent of growth in the past few years due to this uh, conflict between China and the U.S. Because when you look at these companies' financial statements, if you look at their performance during like 2014 to 2018 their growth rate was quite slow you know that, that's not a very marvelous growth rate but in the past three years we have saw that their growth rate has been tremendous i mean like 20 30 percent per year unstoppable so you see these companies start to make a lot of money and with the money they make they start to reinvest this money into producing more sophisticated and better equipped chips although they are still producing these things at a very low extent when you compare with us with dutchland yeah but um they're they're they are increasing on their own base that actually has a very large um, effect on the reducing of China's import of chips, especially when you count this import by number. I mean, if, if you count this um, import by like how much money they spend or um, how many high-end chips have been imported, then that's not a very large drop because local companies are only capable of producing the low or middle-end chips right now. But if you count the import of China by number, I mean, how many chips have we imported? Then you can see a large decline because the low-end chips have um, been, you know, greatly uh, replaced by the domestic production of chips. And I think that's a very significant reason behind this reduction. Mm. What about Tianjiao? I think I agree with our previous speakers about all of these complicated factors. I think they interact with each other and uh, they all contributed to the decrease of the numbers. Well, recession of the world economy, the U.S. sanctions, and also the impact of the COVID, I think they all contribute to the decrease of the numbers. And I think in the long term, I think maybe China will face a more serious economy situation. So maybe a little bit pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what kind of opportunities, uh, or what kind of pessimistic situation China may be in um, later on in the show. But um Stanley just mentioned um, this round of um, pressure started uh, in October, but I think it actually, you know, started in 2019, maybe, when the previous administration imposed sanctions on Huawei and its uh, subsidiaries, putting them on the entity list. And uh, last year, as Stanley said, we saw the U.S. government imposing unprecedented curbs on China. Um, including pushing the Netherlands to ban Asmol from uh, selling chip-making gear to the Chinese mainland. Another piece of news from um, the past few weeks is that uh, the Dutch has agreed to U.S. demand. Stan, do you see it as the biggest blow to Beijing? Uh, yes, I do. That's the one piece of equipment, um, the EUV 
machines that China today cannot do, but uh, some argue that they can. But as of today, they cannot. And that's going to affect any of the high-end chips, you know, 12 nanometers and below. And um, I also think the Netherlands is going to pay a price for this. I think China's ambassador to Holland already announced they will, it will have a big negative impact. You're going to see some sanctions. You're going to see some trade barriers put on Dutch products. So I, I think the, the Dutch are going to pay a very heavy price, just as China will pay at least a short-term heavy price on its chip manufacturing skills. Mm. William, what kind of, uh, you know, probably short-term effect will it have on China's chip uh, sector or well, a kind of ripple effect my, my on other answer, sectors? Again, I'm going to have to take a slightly different spin than what Stanley said. Um, sure. It, it's gonna, it will have a, a, a setback in terms of the AI technology and, and a lot of the, the bleeding edge uses of these, um, these very fancy chips that are sub, uh, you know, double digit uh, nanometers. Mm. Uh, but as, as I said earlier, uh, most of the production in China uh, seems to be finding ways of um, substituting domestically produced uh, older chips or, or some software solution to the process. So I think the harm to China is going to be quite minimal uh, longer term is where you're going to see some constraints. That is, uh, for Xi Jinping's directive to try to be at the at the forefront of um, AI yeah. and, and um, facial recognition and all that kind of stuff, uh, there is where you need the most advanced, uh, fastest chips. And I think that segment of the economy may be set back without uh, a constant supply of the most advanced stuff just to be able to teach uh, the AI uh, algorithms uh, you know, to absorb more data. But I think in terms of... Um, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Chen in the streets of uh, of China, who who are who are in the factories of Tesla or or in the factories of of Nike or or you know the working man in China will not feel this uh, immediately, and also the consumers in China will not feel it immediately because how many people buy AI algorithms um, and how many people are, are working in that right? So so I think the the, the impact on China in the short run will be minimal. Mm. And Jaco, as a uh, the chief investment officer. Which sectors would you suggest um, investors maybe invest or maybe stay away from in light of this uh, development? Well, well, when you look at all these uh, developments, we have saw it actually have helped the growth of Chinese local companies. You know, those companies are producing chips, producing uh, equipments relating with mobile phones, with all these things. Mm. So, so, yes, I mean. But there are a few things. First is that uh, everyone knows this. So, so this is not a news in the market that China and the US are having a conflict and it is uh, good news for the local companies to grab the market share wherever they can take. Everyone in the market knows about this. So uh, they have uh, pushed the, the valuation of many companies to a, a sky high level you know if, if you look at how high uh, these valuations have been especially in the past two years especially in 2021 i mean this year it has been actually dropped quite a lot from the previous high because the valuation has dropped it's not because these companies have not been doing good i mean most of these companies have achieved like 50 percent growth within two years but their valuation dropped by an even larger extent so you have saw their stock prices have fallen uh, so it, for the companies who, whose valuations are still uh, pretty expensive right now, I think investors uh, should still uh, be cautious about them. Because if you look at the uh, chips industry, it has been proved by the history in the U.S. that you won't have many winners. Uh, you would have a very one or two very big winners, and 
all the rest of the companies uh, would lose their market to these uh, one to two winners, like Intel, uh, AMD, these kind of companies. So, so it's it's a history that tells us not everyone is going to win in this industry. So, uh, for the companies who are having a very high valuation, especially those companies who are having a very high valuation and a not very uh, strong competitive power, then I think investors shall be a bit aware about them. And the second is that China is still uh, lacking pretty uh, far away in some of the extent. I mean, China is good at producing low and middle range of chips. That That's a good thing. But so, for some other business area, like the business area that ASML is working at, the lithography industry, then that's actually a problem because we're still lacking pretty far behind in this industry. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you find a company working in this industry, uh, you might take a very long time for them to keep on investing without making any financial returns, say five or even 10 years. So that's something that if, if we are talking about investment, that's something uh, we shall be caring about. Mm. And uh, another loser I think to be maybe is the U.S. semiconductor firm Marvell. And recently it announced its um, plan to lay off the entire China R&D team. So, um, Tian Jiao, I'm wondering what kind of, um, you know, harm it will uh, generate um, both on, you know, China and uh, maybe on the U.S. firms themselves. Will such firms as as, um, Intel or other tech firms have to withdraw their R&D team as well? Yeah, um, the global like supply chain is really complicated. In fact, for the chip industry, we know that it is because the division of labor and it is for more efficiency. So we created such complicated global supply chain. And I think that every players in the supply chain is they play a very important role. So um, such the coupling strategy will definitely hurt, and all of the costs will be bought by like uh, consumers and the other players on this chain. So I think that's why Chinese government always say that, uh, so don't hurt yourself to the United States. But uh, uh, now it seems that um, Biden administration is very serious on more sanctions on China and the decoupling strategy. So I'm not sure, but I, I think what the Dutch government did is not a good example. In fact, you know, I mean, from the international relations perspective, usually countries like Dutch, um, so it's middle powers, they they usually play a balanced role, especially in the background of like a US-China great competition. Um, but now this time, Dutch and also uh, Japan joined the US sanction on China, mm. which will set a negative example to other like middle powers, including like South Korea and other key players on supply chain. So which I think that um, it, it, it will further disrupt the global supply chain and it will hurt more to both, I think, China and the U.S. chip companies. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Yeah, I was talking about, uh, you know, the latest uh, news with um, U.S. Um, chip firm Marvell. It's announced its plan to lay off uh, the entire China R&D team. So I guess uh, William will take it as um opportunity, probably, for... Uh, the mainland firms here. Well, I, I, I don't know about an opportunity. But when one company withdraws a, a big chunk of its team like that, no one company has a monopoly on talent. Mm. And so I, I think one of the things that's absolutely true is that when there's a vacuum, people will move in, whether it's uh, going to be Chinese uh, enterprises or non-US entities. Right. Um, 
But the whole idea of but the supply chain, I think, is a, a very interesting story that we should focus some attention on. Because with COVID, we learned that the kind of stretched out supply chains that we had pre-COVID really are not feasible when you take into account other costs, especially costs in terms of national security and, and safety and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I think what we've discovered now is that the regionalization of production, then the regionalization of supply chains is sort of the globalization 2.0. And I think um, it's not necessarily true that costs will be raised because of that, because I think um, the desire to have full in cost, that is safety and soundness, as well as the monetary costs are things that um, are worth paying for. Mm. And so I think the distribution of production, distribution of research, distribution of stuff is going to be much more profound uh, and we're going to see more regionalization of supply chains. Now, there are monopolies in the world like the ASML, um, and they, you know, you can only diversify so much of the stuff, and you all are, are dependent upon that one firm for the UV lithographic stuff. But that's a rare example. Um, I, I think, you know, for the rest of the chip production, and I think um, there is where I think China has the opportunity. And when China gets economies of scale, just like Toyota did back in the 70s, right? Toyota started producing these junky little cars, but they were great gas mileage. And GM and Ford said, oh, we don't care. We'll give up that end of the market because all of our profits are coming from the high end, the really sophisticated big cars. Well, guess what happened, right? As Toyota got better and better getting these uh, fuel-efficient cars, they started eating up the rest of the, of the food chain. I think China is in exactly that same position to go up the learning curve uh, by focusing its manufacturing prowess on, on being great producers of the that middle segment, that the double digit nanometer chips. And eventually it will create that ecosystem with the right kind of research facilities domestically to push itself into the world where you know TSMC is dominant. Well, uh, William, I understand your theory, but uh, we'll dive deeper into that uh, later. But um Another piece of bad news, uh, there's a lot of going on currently in this sector. Um, another piece of bad news for uh, Chinese mainland's chip sector from around a week ago is that uh, TSMC founder, Morris Chan, who is relatively reserved in commenting on U.S. decisions, has, you know, for the first time been vocal in expressing his support for U.S. policy on containing China's chip in- industry. So... Jacko, from your point of view, what prompted the change? Well, I don't know. It's probably because of the uh, pressure coming from the U.S. You know, the, well, in the recent years, we have saw that the global politics have actually stepped in too heavily into the global, uh, you know, chips industry, and, and and that's a very very bad thing because the world actually doesn't need two or even three systems of chips. I mean, China producing one, U.S. producing one, probably some other uh, countries producing their own systems. It's it's not that way because chips is an industry that really requires a very heavy amount of investment. If you look at every generation of new chips, that will be billions, tens of billions of dollars investment. And if you have two systems, that's actually a waste. But when you have the global politics running into the chips industry, uh, and when the chips are so important for the modern economy, uh, then we have saw that because of the pressure coming from politics, all countries that are separated on each side must produce their own chips. So that uh, finally will not stop the growth of countries like China, because uh, China is such a large economy. I mean, 1.4 billion people, a similar population to the total population of G7 countries. So so that means China has enough 
demand toward producing even its own chips if its importing of chips and chip producing equipment have been uh, stopped. So that will be enough demand. There will be enough money to invest into uh, like employing researchers, uh, running uh, equipment, all these kind of things. And finally, China will have its own uh, chips, maybe five or 10 years later, that is at, at a quality comparable to the current uh, well, leading level of chip production. But that finally will be a waste to the world economy anyway. But anyway, that's a consequence when we have too much politics involved into the market economy. Uh, you've already uh, talked about the the entire economy, but uh, go back a little bit to Morris Chan. Um, Stan, you, you worked with Kingston and... Um, I think you, you must be very familiar with the mindset of a, you know, a founder of a tech company. What is up on, on his mind? Yes, I actually having met uh, Morris uh, um, some years back in, in, in Taiwan, I, I have sources and it was, uh, it was alleged that when he met Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, right. he, he told Nancy, Speaker of the House Pelosi, that it was very, very naive of the United States to think that it could just spend $50 billion and have a semiconductor supply chain within two years, and that it was doomed for failure. Mm. I think afterwards, then, I think he got a spanking from the higher level people in Taiwan. Don't talk that way. We have to be seen as a as a U.S. ally. And I think he changed direction and started talking very positive about what's happening in, in, in Arizona and the and the CHIPS Act. But I think his mindset is what he told Speaker of the House, that it is a virtual impossibility for you to just put $50 billion in and expect to be producing the most cutting edge chips in 2024. Um, not just setting up a new factory, but the, the literally hundreds, if not thousands of supply chains needed to support a $12 billion operation in the middle of the desert. It is virtually impossible. It took Morris 30, 40 years to take TSMC where it is today. Uh, China itself, even though it's still on the low end or, or middle end chip design, uh, uh, chip foundry and manufacturing, it's been doing this for over 30 years. So it takes a lot of um, nerve. That, that, that That's how I see Morris thinking. For you to think you can do this in, in a matter of a couple of years, which I think is impossible. But some some people say that uh, TSMC has already been in Washington's um, back pocket, or on its way to becoming an an American company. Maybe not exactly the same situation, but it was similar to to what happened to uh, Francis Alstom, <laughs> which fell to uh, the American trap, like a uh, former Alstom executive um, Frederick uh, Pierucci would call it. Um, if so, what would that mean for, you know, the mainland's chip industry? Um, first, I don't necessarily think uh, TSMC is in Washington, D.C.'s pocket. I think Morris Chang and Taiwan are trying to play a very fine line. The 10% of their production is still in China. 10% of their sales is still in China. And China is growing. But they have to kind of play this very, very fine line. And, 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 and the chip industry is constantly changing. So th things could change next year. Things could change the year after. So I think they're just buying time, waiting for things to kind of settle down, at least from a geopolitical standpoint. And then they'll do things in the U.S., but they'll start going back and doing things in the U.S., even though Washington, D.C. has told companies that they have to 
stop investing. There'll be loopholes. There'll be exemptions. So they're just sitting tight right now and trying to play both sides. I, I, yeah, like, let me interrupt you. I, sure. I think Sam is absolutely 100% right. I think the, the CHIPS Act is probably the best shot in the arm for China's semiconductor industry you could possibly ask for. Because he, uh, Sam is absolutely right that you, it's not just a plant producing the advanced stuff. You need the entire ecosystem. That the, the supply chain feeding into that factory is enormous. And it took, uh, I mean, Singapore tried to have a competitor to TSMC for uh, almost a decade. And Singapore's uh, attempt, you know, some of the smartest people in the world are, are there in Singapore, and they failed. The uh, global uh, semiconductor, right, which was another attempt at trying to compete with TSMC, they also failed. Uh, the Middle East have bought them out now, and I don't know what's happened to them. But, you know, I, I think what China has that none of these competitors have is exactly what Stanley said, an ecosystem and supply chain that has talent as well as raw materials that supply into the semiconductor industry that can't be replicated easily around the world. And I think the biggest mistake for the United States is to have a dream that um, they could have uh, suddenly a whole crop of um, design engineers show up in Arizona to be able to replicate what they do in Taiwan. And, 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 and I think Morris and other executives in the industry have said, that's a pipe dream. We don't have the work ethic and we don't have the talent in the United States to be able to replicate what they have in Taiwan. Then, so, so I think he's absolutely right. And what, what, what make you so sure that uh, China or China's mainland can succeed in this um, attempt? Because China has already all of the ingredients that Singapore tried to build up over the years and failed to. And, and, and all that's missing is really the, um, the, the learning curve, right? The amount of time and talent that uh, TSMC put in place in Taiwan, um, and, and they have brought to uh, the mainland over the last several years to get that most advanced production going. So in, in some ways, all the ingredients are there, and all you have to do is light the match <laughs> in China. Um, and, and, and whereas in, in the United States, we, we have to build the kitchen. <laughs> we don't even have the, you know, the, the bare-boned ingredients and infrastructure to get the chip industry to come relocate in its entirety in the United States. Now, now what I think they're really going to do is some of the critical aspects of that supply chain will be located in Arizona, but that they're going to find that they're going to have difficulties with that stretched out supply chain going to the rest of the world. And so Mexico is going to come into the act and, and other places, they're going to try to build that supply chain. But again, um, that's the same place where Singapore tried to, you know, was, was in uh, and others have, have tried to do it. And, and I, I don't know if the United States really can have the time and money to be able to replicate what um, what has been already put in place over the last 20 years in China. Mm, but uh, on the mainland, um, companies here have been struggling for many years to come up with uh, high-end um, gear to produce, you know, high-end chips. I think Jiahe is more familiar with this, right, the bottlenecks we have. Well, if, if we're talking about the production of um, chips, especially the uh, low-end and mid-end chips, and Chinese companies are actually capable of producing uh, these uh, products uh, with profitability, you know, because we are quite familiar with, um, like, producing chips at 10 nm or 28 nm, these kind of scales. But when we talk about high-end production, like um, uh, the equipment used to producing chips, like what the uh, ASML ha has been doing, yeah. then Chinese companies are actually uh, lacking 
quite far behind this. Probably takes another decade to catch the current level.、Mm. So it really for these companies, if they want to make money in the market, currently it's not quite possible because the importing of equipment and chips from the global market is not completely stopped. I mean, people can still import from、uh, these markets only with more obstacles. So their production right now is not much capable of producing profit in a free market. But if you look at the global chip industry, it's not a free market anymore, and、um, so so everyone recognizes. So currently, these companies would actually living on either the government subsidy or the fundraising from、uh, like the open stock market or、uh, private equity、uh, venture capital investors who believe that by Inventing China's own equipment, they will be able to earn a very large profit after maybe five or ten years struggling.、Uh, so, so that's、uh, how they can make money at the moment. I mean, they, they can't make money from the open market right now. It's it's just a bit too hard for them, and takes quite a long time for these companies to catch up. Mm. But it's not just about money or profit. It's about the capability of the entire industry. So, in light of the、um, tightened U.S. containment policy, the, the government is also adjusting its.、Um, Industrial policies to to meet the challenge.、Um, measures include,、um, you know, giving industry leaders such as、uh, Huawei and、uh, SMIC extra funding and、uh, easier access to subsidies, and setting up a new Central Science Commission and a reinvigorated Ministry of Science and Technology. But I'm not sure how helpful these measures would be, you know, in helping the the country develop its own. Lithography machines.、Um, well, can I just jump in here because I should.、Sure. I,、um, I've been talking to some some people about the、uh, China's development plans、mm. and、um, the last、uh, p- uh, party congress、uh, and the plans that were laid out there, especially the 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 spreading out of innovation centers.、Um, you know, going going away from the main centers and going out west to to Chengdu as a new innovation center. Yeah,、uh, those are the kind of programs I think where you allow competition to really take hold. One of the dangers I see. Is in the way that the, the implementation discussion seems to be going is the greater role of state-owned enterprises in these innovative companies. I think that would be a dangerous thing because once you have a state-owned company, the ability of the of the entrepreneur to take risks and to be innovative starts to be constrained by other considerations. And I think、um, if China really stays with its plan of creating many innovation centers around the world,、uh, around the country,、uh, especially out west where there's su- such little. Be done there, but there's a lot of talent there. There's a really good hope that、uh, China can bootleg itself fairly quickly, and the learning curve that、um, Jeff had just talked about may not be as steep as、uh, he thinks. You know, five to ten years. It may well be, you know, much shorter than that. If we can have the kind of competition where we allow failures and promote、uh, that kind of innovation, but if once you start the state. Coming in and directing innovation, that's when you will slow things down.、Mm. That's exactly what happened in Singapore, by the way. Tianjiao,、yeah. what's your interpretation? Well, the recent、um, like industrial policies makes me have more confidence in the future R and D and、uh, chip production. I think I, I just want to make some like compared study with other like high tech domain. You know, in the past decades, we have sanctions on other high tech fields from the United States and other Western countries. But finally, I think we made success. So,、uh, for example, the nuclear field. Well, it, it's not. As difficult as、uh, chip making, but I think at back at that time it, it was a big challenge. But through industrial policies and、uh, all of these, well, people working together finally we made it. And、uh, for aerospace, outer space exploration, 
and rockets, I think we also face um, very, very difficult like um, situation. But now we have witnessed those great uh, success. So again, I think, well, for the chip production, now I, I, I have more confidence uh, in the future. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. But it's not the first time uh, for Beijing to introduce such a stimulus plans. Uh, Jiahe, what went wrong? Why haven't we come up with anything so advanced as what um, ASML has? Uh, well, uh, if, if you look at the growth of China's uh, chips uh, industry, it has actually got a very large progress in the past few years. I mean, if, if you read the financial statements of these companies, the growth rate of income uh, grew at around 20 to 30% annually, and their profit rose as well. And their capability of uh, using that profit to reinvest into the production also starts to grow. But I think, I think the government subsidy is a very small cost with this. Uh, the, the biggest cost is that uh, we start to having more requirements of domestic produced chips because of this global political uh, pressure that's uh, put on to China. Um, so, so these progress have been made, uh, but why we haven't got the uh, the, the similar uh, level of chip production like uh, what Netherlands have been doing or United States have been doing or TSMC ha- has been doing is because this industry is a very long industry. I mean, it, it started from 1950 uh, in the United States. It took 70 years to grow. It's an industry where you require a heavy amount of investment into equipment, assets, production, training of uh, researchers and technicians, everything. It's it's a huge industry. It's probably one of the largest industries in the world today. And uh, definitely the most sophisticated one um, that requires the largest amount of Britain. So when you look at this industry, it, it takes uh, well, a decade, uh, at least 10 years or 20 years for a country even as large as China to catch up. So so that's probably the reason that that's why we say uh, China's chips are still far behind uh, the global uh, leading level. But if that situation continues for like 20 years, that China is kept on being blocked away from the importing of whatever that is produced in Europe or America, then I think China would be able to produce their own things. I mean, look at the large aircraft. Uh, currently, China is now capable of producing its own uh, large aircraft, even at a smaller scale compared with Boeing or Airbus, but still at a business level. And that took China about, I think it's about 15 years to compare this industry. So when you look at the chip industry, that, that will take a similar amount of time. Yes, people have been saying China has, you know, has come up with its own space station. Why can't the country come up with something better in, in the chip industry? But uh, people are saying uh, talent drainage, probably. Manpower is the main problem here. Um, Stan, do you agree with that? Not necessarily. I, I, I think China produces the most engineers uh, graduating per, per year. Where I see the problem is, and th- this comes from actually my experience uh, working in China mm. with, with the aircraft business, working right. with, with Comac, new product development, new technologies have for the most part in China, they come from academia, from the Aeronautical University of Beijing, for example, or they come from research institutions, right? You know, research institution number five, number six. Those are the kind of companies or institutions we were dealing with earlier in high-speed rail, in aviation, in even the auto industry in China. 
China has to move that R&D from government controlled to the private sector, to SMIC, to Huawei. Give them the government money and let them decide what products to make, what technologies to make with their engineers that know the market much better than research institutions. Once they begin to do that, I think you're going to see time fly much faster for the semiconductor technologies. Mm. Okay, Tianjiao, please. Yeah, yeah. If if I may jump in,、sure. um, I think that、uh, human resources is,、uh, in fact, is is one of the big obstacles we are facing today. In fact, well, I I asked、uh, my colleague from Department of Microelectronics. I mean, we have a lot of talent students, but、uh, when we teach them, train them, we focus much on like、um, theory. But what we need, in fact, is how to integrate like、um, industry with like teaching and training. So. In fact, we need to upgrade、uh, our teaching model. How to train more、um, talent students to adapt them to the like development of the like the chip industry. That this is what I think is is really important in the next five and ten years. And、um, you know that we don't have a lot of like、um, practice in industry. I mean, for for students, for young engineers. So usually they have a lot of good publication. I mean, for for papers, SCI papers. And like、uh, awards a lot in the like international conference, but they really what they really need is their like experience and practice in industry and companies. So so I think that this is one of the big obstacle that we are facing today. Besides, I think yes,、uh, like Stan said, we we do have a lot of、uh, talented students, but the talent has been you know siphoned away to other countries like the states. So how how yeah, yeah, can yeah. we no, you but, know but, keep but them? Again, I, I, Can I can I say、sure. the reason why they've gone to the states is because in the states they can start up a company and use the th- stuff they learned in the universities and the research labs、mm. and develop stuff to be able to make a lot of money,、uh, and and I think the profit motive is a key driver. Look at what happened around、um, the the computer industry, right? Back in the the sixties and seventies, MIT dominated, and that Route one twenty eight around Boston was the Set the the hub of every computer manufacturer around, and now we have Silicon Valley, which you know keyed off of Stanford Labs. So the integration, as Tianzhou said, integration of pure research, academic research, with the kind of practice of putting stuff into play and and into production,、mm-hmm. uh, is a very successful model here in the United States. The startup industry and the venture capital industry is something that feeds that kind of of transfer from academia to production.、Yeah. And I think Stan was absolutely right to say that that China has got all the talent. But the incentive structure to create production and create products has to be built up. And the danger, as I said before, is that you will reverse that trend if you focus everyone on going to state enterprises. How、Because、do you? Once you have state state enterprises, that's where the difficulty of getting your stuff from research idea to production starts to to, to stall out. Right, but the question here is how. I, you can replicate the same model that we have in the United States and in in Europe,、uh, in Germany,、uh, where you have startups and you have incentivized. Students and professors to take their research and bring it into production. Find funding to get their ideas into something. You know, a better iPhone, a better Tesla. Right? Those are the kind of things that can be、uh, incentivized. But right now, China doesn't have that pipeline.、Mm. And、uh, a- another approach to solving this problem, not saying the talent problem, but the you know the chip development issue, is that、um, maybe. Actually, a lot of people are talking about this is to develop a new type of、um, lithography technology,、um, say quantum chips. 
or, or think out of the box and focus on, you know, developing graphene-based chips, something people say may, may circumvent the lithography machines. So how feasible is that, Stan? Yeah, I, I don't see that as a short-term feasible solution. Mm. It's, it's something that I think it's going to maybe come in 10 to 15 years, but it's not going to solve China's immediate problem. So I would still stick with silicon, and I would still try to develop ASML-type technology. And, and in fact, what I'm hearing today is that SMIC already has homegrown technology and are making uh, seven nanometer chips. You know, how, how much they're making, at what cost, we don't know. And there, there are rumors also that they're using equipment, ASML-like equipment from SMEE, Shanghai Micro Electronics Equipment Company. Mm. So I know we often say China is still far off from the uh, single nanometer type chips, but I actually personally don't see them as that far off. I think they're only a stone's throw away, maybe within three to five years. What gives you um, that confidence? Yeah, I, I have been involved with China too long to underestimate what they can do. People over the years have said China cannot compete in high-speed rail. China cannot compete in telecommunications, the automotive industry, the tunnel uh, boring technology. But th not only have they overcome all these, they are now the leaders in, in many of these technologies. So I never underestimate what the Chinese are capable of doing. Also, they have a 30-year head start now in semiconductor technologies. If they were starting from ground zero, I would say that they got a long way to go and they may have a problem. But they're more than halfway. They're, you know, on that S-curve, they're right at that inflection point. And they're, they're accelerating. And I think you're, 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 you're going to see them produce under 10 nanometer chips probably within the next three to five years. So the, the catch-up will be very, very quick. Mm, Jiahe, are you as optimistic as uh, Stanley? Well, I, I would say that uh, it, it depends on how the uh, global politics uh, situation is going to be in the future, because that's a very hard thing to predict. Because you know, uh, one uh, in in the past many years, if you look at it, ten years ago, people thought China's uh, chip industry really had no future because U.S. was setting no limits of selling their best products to China, and chips. Uh, when you look at these products, uh, the shipping cost of them is really really low compared with the value that these products carry. So that means, um, as long as the U.S. Uh, or other countries are having a leading technology with the chip production, uh, then China Chinese companies really don't stand a chance because their their products are really not capable of competing against the leading uh, products in the world. So at that time, uh, the market actually gave the local chip companies very low valuation at that time, less than one PB ratio. That's because the market didn't really believe they had a future. But now it's that the politics has been put onto this whole industry so that Chinese companies are suddenly having their market share, having their subsidy, having their consumption from the local companies and government units, and they are having the money to invest. 
And also the investors are really starting to turn their attention to this industry. They believe that China needs its own chips. So money are starting to be pouring into this industry right now and the market competition has been started. So it looks like if this situation goes on for the next 10 years, then we will see China's chip industry will start to progress very strongly. And even after China's chip industry is matured enough, then it will become a capable competitor of the U.S. in the world. That is, any country that has been uh, blocked from the global chip industry, they might get imports from Chinese uh, chip producing as well. But that's also uh, one thing that's remained uncertain for investors is that will this uh, politics tension uh, go on forever? I mean, mm. current consensus looks like this political tension will go on forever. Just like uh, 10 years ago, everyone thought there will be uh, no political conflict. So you, you just never know. And if five years later, this political political tension is easing away between China and the US, and all the global products start to come back to the Chinese market again, then that will be a very large challenge for the local companies. So in order to face this competition, the local companies have to grow themselves as uh, as quickly as possible in order to counter any competition that might come in the future. Mm, yeah, a lot of uh, variables to uh, take into account. So last question to all of you. Um, Maybe we start from Tianxiao this time. Uh, give us a picture how the landscape of the world's uh, chip industry may look like over the next five to ten years. Can China, you know, like, like Huawei founder Ren Zhengfei once said, cut an es- escape route from uh, Western containment or even stage an extraordinary turnaround in chip making? Well, um, I will provide a perspective from international relations perspective. I think the global environment will not be good for China. I think there will be more competition between China and the US. And um, there might be like uh, high tech blocks in the five or 10 years. So I think that for Chinese uh, give up those like uh, naive thinking mm-hmm. and we need to work hard by ourselves. So we need to struggle for our own um, chip uh, ecosystem. So my suggestion is that uh, we need to work hard step by step. So maybe 28 nanometers first and later, so we can have like those high end uh, R&D and uh, make it chip production through the learning curve in five and 10 years, maybe. But in fact, we have to solve the problems first. For example, what William mentioned, the problem about the model and also the human capital issue. So I, I think we, we, we need to like face the reality and uh, rely on ourselves. And Jiahe? Well, I, th- I think uh, th- there is no doubt. I mean, that's because China is a large economy. And when, when you look at the size of this economy, it's, it's 1.4 billion people, hundreds of large cities, even with cities more than 1 million population, we've got over 100 of them. So that means that's a large market. And a large market enables a lot of competition, enables the investment of funds, the hiring of talents, all these kind of things. So if China has been stopped from buying the uh, international chip equipment and products like we're currently facing, if this goes on in the future, uh, there is no doubt uh, that China will be able to produce its own products. And William? Yeah, I think the, as I said earlier, the best thing to happen to China has been the restrictions the U.S. has placed on the exports of the technology to China because China is now incentivized to innovate. It's got the talent to do so. It's got the ecosystem uh, in place. And so China really is 
on the verge of accelerating its production into the very most sophisticated chips. And, and right now, I'm very optimistic that China can turn it around if they allow innovation to take place, if they distribute the innovation to different innovation centers and allow the innovation centers to compete with each other. Incentivizing innovation and allowing innovation to freely take place is the best thing for China right now and, and will be China's hope for the future. Mm, actually, uh, what I'm just said echoes that no Chinese saying, the oppressed will rise to win. And last but not least, Stan. <laughs> yes, I, I'll, I'll just add that sanctions haven't really worked in recent years. Look at uh, Huawei. They went from a very low point, not being able to uh, sell smartphones, to now being the, the world's leader in, uh, in 5G. So sanctions really haven't worked there. Sanctions on Russia, I don't think have really worked. The, the economy seems to be doing quite well. It has a positive GDP mm. predicted for this year. So I think China right now is kind of at a low point. It's, it's kind of deciding how it's going to move forward in, in, in terms of chips. But it's going to solve that problem very, very quickly. It has the manpower. It already has a solid a semiconductor base, a, a solid supply chain based on 30 years of experience. And, and, and I'll just finally add, to have a successful domestic semiconductor industry supply chain, you have to have a big market for it. Because the semiconductor industry is based upon economies of scale. It's billions and billions of dollars for factories, for foundries. So you need billions and billions of dollars of sales and millions and millions of people. China has that. It has the market to sell to, not just domestically, but let's say you include its its allies or, or 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 let's say it's belt and road country allies, it can easily fit that semiconductor industry to that size of population. So I have no doubt that China will, will be able to resolve these issues probably within the next three to five years. But we are heading towards a bifurcated world where technologies are gonna to go to parallel lines probably at least for the next 10 years. And we cannot backtrack to what we've been doing 10 years ago. Mm, indeed. And when it comes to manpower issue, I was thinking about a closer partnership between, you know, Chinese and Russian experts, given what's going on between the two countries at this time. So as a Chinese ancient scholar and poet, Chuan's uh, famous poem says, Long, long had been my road, and far, far was the journey. I would ascend and descend, pursuing my search. But let's just hope um, the journey won't be too long. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Stanley Chow, Managing Director for All In Consulting and author of the book, Selling to China. William Lee, Chief Economist at the U.S.-based Milken Institute. Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer of Beijing-based Novem Arcade Technologies and Jiang Tianjiao, Associate Professor, Development Institute of Fudan University for sharing your insights with us. If you have any comments on the topic or on the show, please feel free to leave a message for us. Just search Chat Lounge. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. You can also send us an email to radio at cgtn.com. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. D-Dine, a podcast of CGTN Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations.